What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Church Split, where we help you escape your church echo chamber, learn to think biblically, and of course, challenge the status quo, as always. And of course, we are continuing our series on reviewing the Potter's Freedom by Dr. James White. Uh, yes, uh, you have the old edition, sir. How dare you? So do I. <laughs> um, so uh, for those of you who do not know, um, Dr. James White has declared war. And we have accepted so here we are. Just kidding, kind of. Uh, <laughs> so for those of you guys who don't know, we have been planning on doing this for quite a while um, before uh, all the Dillard's controversy because, you know, what you do for a living doesn't, you can't be taken seriously. No. So um, now a couple things. Many people are like, oh my goodness, Will, you were on the dividing line. And yes, we were on the dividing line only at the very beginning when you and I were bantering and joking around and none of the substance was actually dealt with, although there's a hint that there may possibly be some in the future. Yeah. Now, I feel like we should address some of those things real quick before we get started. Um, so first off, uh, yes, I forgot to say Junior. You're right, R.C. Sproul Jr. Dr. White, you're right. All my arguments are now destroyed. I did not say junior. And uh, also, we, we, we were interacting with, you know, how dare we interact with the first edition of the book when, you know, the second edition has been out for 10 years. Just this is one thing, though, like when uh, he was going through, um, was it was it Ken Wilson's book? Right. Uh, it was people said to him, well, why aren't you interacting with the dissertation? Right. Why are you interacting with this popular level book? And White was basically like, well, are you saying that like the popular level book is a piece of crap and like that the arguments in it don't hold up? Well, I mean, if he, we could make that same argument here, right? So like if he wants us to interact with the second edition, like is he saying that the arguments he put forward in the first edition were garbage? I mean, um, you know, we, we can play that game too. Right. Well, the other thing is, uh, and honestly, uh, for those who don't know, because uh, he was like, well, Will was nice to me on the program when I was on the show. And it's true. I was because actually White is, it, for those of you who do not know, White is actually a lot of fun to interact with. He's, he's a really fun guy. He's actually very personable, very sarcastic. I appreciate that. Okay. I am heavy on the sarcasm, which so he might have found that we were too, well, like maybe mocking, I don't know. For me, I was just joking around. Because yeah. what people don't know what the church split is. The church split's about uniting the divided body, but part of that is by not taking everything so seriously, not dividing and splitting and fighting and splitting churches over every small and mundane thing. So for us, we're like, guys, let's not take ourselves too seriously. We could take theology seriously, but let's not take ourselves too seriously. Um, so we're kind of like the late night talk show of theology, and that's why usually when people are like, all right, so this interview, do you have like really serious questions? How do you want me to present? I'm like, dude, it's a chat. It's a chat because it's the late night talk show of theology. We're just hanging out, talking, which means we can have jokes. We can cut up. In fact, in the church split group on Facebook, people roast me the most on Fallacy Friday when we have our memes. I'm cool with that uh, because, of course, um, I'm a Yankee and I have a horrible, horrible uh, way of mispronouncing things all the time. Benson. And he called, so uh, when I talked about Benson, um, apparently that means uh, any arguments I put out because I said Benson, not Bonson, uh, is to be, uh, means I don't know what I'm talking about, as if I've never read Benson before. And I will continue to call it Benson just because I know it annoys people now. Um, so the point but, is there, I could just as easily say anyone who mispronounces something is wrong. Because in the recent Stratton debate, uh, 
<laughs> Dr. White referred to Thanos as Thanos. And uh, <laughs> I could be like, well, can't take him seriously. He mispronounced the name. Uh, it's silly. Uh, it, yeah. Really what happened. So that's what he said about me. I was, I was nice to him and I am nice. I like a lot of White's work. I said that in the last program too. I just don't think this book is good. And I think that no matter what most books on Calvinism, I'm gonna find a problem because I find Calvinism to be trash. I have been open about my opinion on this. I don't like Calvinism. Doesn't mean I don't like Calvinists. I just find the arguments for Calvinism bad. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, point is, is White, I can like a lot of your stuff while also not liking your book or your Calvinism. I think yeah. that's fair. I know a lot of people, actually a lot of followers of my channel, go, Will, I love a lot of the stuff you do. I disagree with you on a lot of stuff too. And I'm like, cool, that's okay. If you wanted to rebut some of my beliefs, I'm cool with that because I'm okay with an exchange. That's the point of the church split. We can be friends while making that exchange. So anyway, uh, then he says some things about you. Uh, you can go ahead, uh, David, if you'd like. Yeah, sure. And I just thought it was you know, interesting that the substance of what we said none of that got addressed. And I mean, I understand, right? He only was going to interact with a few minutes of it, but like the substance of what we said went completely unaddressed. And instead he just went on and on, you know, pounding on about um, how you didn't put Junior on the end of R.C. Sproul's name, uh, you know, uh, obviously for the, the R.C. Sproul Junior who wrote the foreword of the book or that like you mispronounced Greg Bonson's name. And like, it's like no nitpick was too small, you know? There's just no quibble that was um, that he, like, you could just leave unaddressed, right? Uh, and it just it it makes you look super petty when you're going after that sort of thing. Like if I went after all the nitpicks I had with the Potter's Freedom, right? Like misspelling a name or something like that, incorrect pronunciation or incorrect punctuation, something like that. Uh, that's just like it would make me look so petty if that's the sort of thing. I went after right um but yeah i mean he did say some things about me like that i'm i'm was it very very young and a kid and stuff uh we'll we'll, we'll leave those comments unaddressed um but uh well first of all he did say that i had quote, lied i think was the most serious charge yeah right? he, that was a i laughed at myself because like whatever that's pedantic that's what brian was saying to my co-host he was like okay like he's just being pedantic and i laughed because i was like okay I mispronounced and I forgot to say junior because there is a difference between R.C. Sproul Sr. and junior, even though they're both equally quoted in the Calvinist community. Um, whatever. So cool. Fair point. Good shots. Um, not really. They're kind of petty, but it's fine. I'm cool with it. But then he said you were a liar. And that's when I actually was like, OK, dude, that's that's not cool. We didn't call you a liar. We didn't claim moral superiority over you. So right. go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, there was obviously there were some parts of the whole controversy when I was reviewing it that like I didn't, you know, give a complete, you know, synopsis of everything that had transpired. So basically I said that White had made a post um, about the uh, original controversial post that I had made, you know, saying that Greg Bonson wasn't particularly brilliant or original, which is funny that he did grant that Bonson was not an original thinker. Uh, he tried to play it off like that was a virtue, but um, <laughs> that was that was interesting that he did actually admit that that much of the post was truthful, that Bonson was not an original thinker. Uh, but yeah, he initially, his response, I think on Eli Ayala's post, he's right, it was just a graphic of my, um, my own profile. Uh, the issue was that he had included my workplace on there, and so I think it was Chris Date had reached out to him about that, uh, and you know, 
basically given him the benefit of the doubt, like uh, that he didn't mean to basically demean me for working in retail. Uh, and so in response to that message, then White did make a post where he addressed my original post. And uh, there he did say things that, like my workplace was relevant and that he included it deliberately. And uh, that, uh, you know, I wasn't old enough to have read uh, or understood the writings of Greg Bonson and Cornelius Van Til and such. And I, I think it doesn't take that much charity to see that that's what I was referring to, that longer post. And yet he basically just denied it. He was basically like, like, what post? Like, I don't know anything about a post. Did you see a post? Um, yes, there was a post. And I mean, I got it right here. I mean, if I can share my screen. All right. Yeah. So this post here from James White dated at January, you know, January 31st, 7.47 p.m. Uh, this is the post I was referring to. Um, so, you know, it, just call someone a liar is a very serious charge, right? And it's not one I throw around lightly. And I could very easily, you know, throw back, oh, White was lying by denying that he ever made this post right here, you know? I'm not going to do that because I take the charge of calling someone a liar very seriously. I'm going to give White the benefit of the doubt that he was simply referring to, um, that he was simply referring to uh, the original, you know, comment that he made and that he uh, mistakenly thought that that's what I was referring to, uh, his initial reaction. But I really, you know, I don't think it would take a lot of charity or, or sorry, I don't think it would take a whole lot of, you know, thinking to realize that this was the post I was talking about. So uh, and then while I have my screen shared, uh, he also basically expressed some kind of skepticism or incredulity that this book review that we're doing had nothing to do with this controversy between him and me. Right. He didn't explicitly say that, but he was kind of like laughing about it. Like he didn't really think that. Uh, or like, obviously it was motivated uh, by our controversy and that we had no plans to do this prior. Uh, so I think we can't actually show that to be false, right? You see mm -hmm. here, this is the original post that I made that sparked the controversy. You can see right here, it's dated uh, uh, January 30th, right? Right. So here is a post that I actually made before that. You see here, it's dated to January 20th. Right, I'll full screen that there. So see, this is dated to January 20th. And I said, oh, Will Hess, what have you done? I just finished my notes on the problems with chapter one and they are extensive. The hot chocolate is to help keep, or is to help me keep my sanity. This book review is going to be brutal. So here you have, <laughs> you see that, um, yeah, I, I we clearly had plans to do this uh, at least 10 days before the controversy. And I mean, as it was actually before that, but that was your first time you posted about putting your right. notes together. Yeah, yeah, and it has that and it has the classic church split spicy tone to it. Right. Like the uh, the yeah, this is going to be brutal. Like this is just the way we talk. Like, so if you're not familiar with us, we crack jokes. I mean, white roasted me on my own program. <laughs> and he was like, all right, if you want to hold to a position that the Jesuits to abandon, da, 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 go ahead. And he kind of gave this kind of study. Like, I laughed because I thought it was funny. Yeah. I'm okay with that. So White does know this, even though we're bantering here, we're not actually attacking you as a person. I, right. We're talking about your book, mainly because we're not Calvinists. It is the book I hear referenced often the most by Calvinists. So by the low hanging fruit, we are talking about simply the fact that this is the most common one. So, yeah. And that it's, it's not. It's not a particularly good one, which he like seems to sort of admit throughout it. He's like always hunting to other people, right? Like that John Piper has exegeted, you know, Romans nine, or um, you know, this this particular reformed scholar has answered Geisler's question on this, right? So I mean, 
he even kind of admits that he's not doing like the um the most work here in this book that other people have maybe done elsewhere in defense of Calvinism. Uh, it just so happens I don't even think the work he's done here is good, and so hence the low-hanging fruit comment, which he really took offense at. Right. Now, one of the things, so yeah, when you said that, that was um, because we don't think it's a particularly good defense of Calvinism. Uh, he took that, it's like that meme where he's like, and I took that personally. <laughs> <laughs> which I get it. I mean, if I w took the time to write a book, I probably would be like, what? You don't, you think my book is trash? That's it. Like, I'd probably take it a little personally too. I get it. Like, I'm not saying yeah. that. I understand how that could easily happen. But I think, uh, Dr. White, if you're watching this ever, um, I think Nick Quint might be the best one to go after your, for your ire. Because <laughs> he's done a whole series on it and he's over here just, he'll sound off. And I love, Nick, I love you, buddy. You do not let off. Um, but actually, that's exactly what I thought it was, essentially, was it was a gaslight. It was, I did not do those things you did those things. Uh, you're the liar, not me. And it was pretending like these things did not happen. Yeah. Um, and that's what I took probably. I was like, wow, I feel like I'm back to doing an IFB rebuttal because <laughs> it was like instant gaslight. And I, 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 for me, I'm just like, guys, let's own our words. If we didn't do a good enough job, perhaps we stepped out of line, just admit it. Like I said, fair point. I did not say junior. I don't have an ego here to preserve. Okay, cool. That's fair enough. I think it's a nitpick, but it's fine. Um, it, because he was, he, uh, he said the words like, that's a little embarrassing. I'm like, not really. <laughs> you don't know me. I do not care. <laughs> like, I don't care much about uh, in the public space. I've been blasted enough in my life. I really don't care what some person on the internet has to say, but anyway, um, if I did, I wouldn't be on the internet. So, all right, cool. Let's move forward then my friend, let's actually just jump into this. Cause we're covering, uh, chapters five through seven. Um, yeah. And there's not a ton here, not as much as last time, because last time was like, I didn't, I, I was trying to make notes. I'm like, there's too many. There's too many notes for me to respond to. It'd be a six hour episode if we wanted to. So we're, remember, we're picking out particulars. We're not going through every little thing. Okay. So, um, all right, go ahead. Uh, want to go ahead and start us off on dealing with this? Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, we're picking up in chapter five and honestly, chapter five, I think it's probably the shortest chapter in the book, or at least one of the shortest chapters in the book. And yeah, I don't have as much to say about this chapter because largely what he's doing is he's responding to Geisler's definition of unconditional election, which he rightly points out is not at all in line with the traditional, you know, Calvinist understanding. Uh, he spends no less than eight pages quoting prominent Calvinist confessions and authors, and you know, periodically inflating these authors like in an apparent attempt to heighten their credibility, and that's on pages 124 through you know 131. And you know, to be fair to White, um, this time around, he's not quoting them as though the reader should believe them just in virtue of the fact that White thinks that they are all that in a bag of chips. Uh, that's how he usually is quoting these people. But in this case, He's citing them for the purpose of correcting Geisler's admittedly flawed and confusing definition of unconditional election right. uh, to demonstrate that Calvinists have historically defined the term quite differently. And, you know, that's all well and good, uh, but I feel like White really could have made that same point just by quoting, you know, three or four sources, you know, like some of the big ones and, you know, maybe citing some others in a footnote and be like, hey, look, you know, we've got a lot here. Uh, why does White feel the need to quote this excessive number of sources? I get the distinct impression that White's like trying to impress the reader with like the sheer amount of literature in the Calvinist world or maybe just his knowledge of it. 
Yeah, maybe I'm being cynical. Maybe I am. I just genuinely feel like that's an excessive number of quotations. It's literally like the entire chapter. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, for me, I'm like, okay, I'm okay with a little overkill. Um, so personally for me, I'm like, okay, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. But uh, <laughs> as I was reading, but to be fair, he was correcting um, a misrepresentation by Geisler as well. Like you and I have already said, Geisler's book's not a good book either. Yeah. Um, and I love Geisler too. Like I, there's a lot of work by Geisler I love. So before anyone takes that wrong, I, I just don't think his Chosen But Free is a very decent book on soteriology either. So, um, so this decree of God, I do want to talk about the Westminster Confession right, Confession a little bit right here. Don't want to mispronounce anything. Um, this election is not conditioned upon anything in the human, but I do take issue with that because the condition is faith. So that is expressly put in scripture. The condition is faith. You can say that's a work if you choose it. So, uh, other people say it's not a work if you choose it. Uh, look, bottom line is faith is the condition. So I just don't think that's a, I, I, the Westminster Confession is necessarily accurate there or that, or point six on page 125 is necessarily that helpful. Um, but to be fair uh, to him on page 131, he does make the conclusion, conclusory statement that they all defined unconditional election as being without conditions. So, uh, and that's why I have a problem with unconditional election because the condition is in fact faith. So yeah. I find unconditional election to just not hold up with scripture. So anyway, was there anything you wanted to add in uh, chapter five there? No, no, we don't need to spend a lot of time in chapter five. Okay. <laughs> Quite honestly, it's probably the best chapter in the book. <laughs> Which See, is bad. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'd i I'd agree. I was actually just surprised it was short. I was, I was like, I was happy about that when I was reading it. So, all right. Uh, now jumping into chapter six. Um, Chosen but freeze big three verses. Yeah, let's go. Page one thirty-five, my friend. Take it off. All right. So White says on page one thirty-five, quote: Throughout this work, Doctor Geisler quotes a set of three verses as evidence that God wants to save all men but is unable to do so outside of their freely willing it to be so, end quote. This is literally the first sentence of the chapter, and White is off to a really bad start. While I really have no interest in defending Geisler's position on this issue, I nevertheless know it well enough to know that White is misrepresenting Geisler here. Neither Geisler nor any other non-Calvinist believes that God is unable to, to save sinners unless they freely believe, right? And I mean, again, that's something that came up in the debate with Stratton. He was like, God can't save these people uh, in some possible worlds, right? Non-Calvinists like Geisler believe that God simply chooses not to save sinners until they freely believe. Certainly God could save unbelievers if he wanted to, but scripture is clear that faith is required first. And so this is just a blatant misrepresentation on White's part, and there's no excuse for it. Now, I also will say this. Um, now, correct me if I'm wrong. Did a Geisler say he re like identified as a light Calvinist or a soft Calvinist? Am I yeah, right like there? a moderate Calvinist. Yeah, something like that. So it's not even like Calvinism versus non-Calvinism. It's like moderate Calvinist to Calvinist. So... Um, so the, re defining him as an Arminian the entire time I find to be kind of faulty, um, especially because Geisler does not bring in Arminian exegesis throughout. Um, he doesn't have a lot of exegesis in his book in general, but anyway. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, yeah, Geisler does, definitely doesn't fit the Calvinist label, but nor is he an Arminian. 
and that that really comes out as a, a book four views on eternal security or maybe it's five views i think it's four views on eternal security and geisler's one of the contributors and he's defending what's called you know moderate calvinism the uh calvinist contributor i think it's michael horton and uh the Arminians as well, they like all point out, no, this is not Calvinism in any sense that he's defending. But sorry, go ahead. No, no, you're good. Um, the, uh, I just want to make sure that if it's, four, if it's actually five and not four, I can't take you seriously. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, so the, uh, the other thing I wanted to point out as far as this whole thing, like God cannot save, uh, you know, without freely, that people being freely willing to do it. I wanted to point out because even so, if God cannot save them, uh, this doesn't mean that God has failed. There are plenty of things that God cannot actually do, right? I would argue that God cannot do that which is logically contradictory. Therefore, thus he cannot save someone who does not put their faith in him because only then is righteousness imbued to us under the blood of Christ. So uh, if we're going by natural law or God's moral law, it's like, okay, so even if we, we say that, okay, fine, God can't. But God can't do it unless there's faith. Why? Because that's how righteousness imbued from Jesus Christ to them. I believe that there are things God cannot do. I don't believe that God can create square circles. I don't believe he can give Adam freedom to sin and then say, nope, you can't touch that tree and then remove that from him because that would be doing that which is contradictory. That would be God making, uh, that would be God not making due on his promise or his command to freely choose. Am I making sense here? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think we might be looking at it from a little bit different perspective. So I would be saying, like, God isn't under um, any obligation to, like, create people with the freedom to believe. Like, if God wanted to set things up the way the Calvinists believe, if God wanted to determine everything, if God wanted to have this unconditional election, I'd say God could do it that way. There's nothing incumbent upon God such that uh, he would have to set things up conditionally. I just don't believe that that's what scripture teaches he has in fact done. And so I think you're saying because scripture teaches that God has in fact decided to act conditionally with man, he can't therefore also act unconditionally because that would be a contradiction. That Right. And that's why I, I've, I want to make note here that David and I do have differing theological views in uh, various areas. We're also very similar in a lot of areas, yeah. but uh, it's one of those things where we're going to have slightly different approaches here. But the point is, is that there's more than just the Calvinist view. I think that right. we can, can we can agree there. Uh, but also, David and I can also uh, respond to each other's work and go, I disagree with you and do so without it making it feel like uh, it's a personal attack. So, um, oh, Unless you mispronounce the name, then I can't take you seriously. Look, man, you almost said like de uh, defunding instead of defending earlier, so I don't want to hear it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, then, all right, moving forward, uh, what else should we talk about here? Uh, false dichotomies? Uh, did I have a section on that? I thought we were going on to misreading scripture. Oh, uh, you had a few. Oh, no, sorry. I see how you've set that up. You're all good. Um, because I definitely want to talk about his view of Matthew 23, 37. You are already having, um, you already pointed out my point in here. So I'll let you go ahead and exegete and then I'll comment. <clears throat> okay. Did, did you want to make a point about a false dichotomy before that or? Uh, no, no, uh, he, you had a note in here, but I think you uh, removed it because it was from page 57. So I think you were just gotcha. editing the same document. You're good. Yeah, yeah, I probably copied it over. All right, yeah, so um, 
Yeah, so there are three verses that Geisler uses a lot, and, you know, in White's defense, Geisler does not really defend these, um, his reading of these texts very well at all. But that doesn't mean that they can't be defended, and it doesn't mean that White's interpretation of them is reasonable. So first one is Matthew 23, 37. The verse reads, and this is Jesus speaking, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Now about this verse, White writes, quote, The ones the Lord desired to gather are not the ones who were not willing. Jesus speaks to the leaders about their children that they, the leaders, would not allow him to gather. Jesus was not seeking to gather the leaders, but their children. End quote, page 138. So, ascertaining who exactly verse 37 is directed towards is a bit more difficult than White lets on. He asserts that Jesus is addressing the leaders, but the context is less than clear. The chapter opens by saying that Jesus is speaking to crowds and his disciples here, that's uh, in verse 1. And then to this audience, Jesus is describing the hypocrisy and sins of their religious leaders. And in verses 13 through 36, Jesus pronounces, you know, the eight woes on the religious leaders who he's uh, repeatedly addressed as the scribes and the Pharisees. But in verse 37, Jesus ceases addressing his words to the scribes and Pharisees and instead addresses them to Jerusalem. Now, White would have us believe that these are one and the same. But why should we, why should we think that? Why does Jesus refer to them as Jerusalem? This is not an obvious synonym for scribes and Pharisees. Right. So uh, Jesus has been pretty consistent in addressing them as the scribes and Pharisees in the preceding verses. And so what would explain him suddenly addressing them as Jerusalem? At the very least, these considerations cast some doubt on White's interpretation. More fundamentally, even if White is correct, what follows? Does this verse cease to be a challenge for his position, even if Jesus is addressing the scribes and Pharisees about their children? Absolutely not. Even if that's what Jesus means, White still has to face the problem that Jesus wants to gather someone to himself and that people are interfering. Uh, there are people that are resisting him. Uh, why can't God just regenerate these children if he wants to? How could the religious leaders possibly stand in the way of that? And yet Jesus is clear that they are not willing. So regardless of who this statement is addressing, the verse poses a real challenge to Calvinism. Right. So one of the things here that stuck out to me, because I read it and I remember reading this part like, oh, I'm really curious how he's going to respond to this. I figured he was going to respond to something like the typical compatibilist thing, right, which is, well, they're not willing because they only will their greatest desire, which is to sin or whatever, something along that nature, that they are willingly pursuing their greatest desire and the greatest desire is sin, even though God decreed it, blah, 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 blah. Okay. <laughs> but point is here is that's what I was expecting. And it really wasn't. Um, it kind of just Oh, it's about the leaders. So therefore, the entire point is irrelevant, is what his point is. Like, my exegesis is that these are about Jewish leaders, not about Jerusalem, the individual Jews themselves. Therefore, Geist's point is irrelevant. I'm like, no, you still have to deal with the fact that they were unwilling. So, okay, cool, it's the leaders. But that means that they are still resisting a will while you are trying to draw them unto you. They are resisting you. So now you have to, you still have to make do about that. Um, and in the book, it just doesn't. I'm not saying White hasn't dealt with it elsewhere, but in this book, it's not there. So it's not a, a meaningful exegesis, if we can use that term, that everyone is joking around in the live chat about. 
So um, you you, also, even you even texted me about that. You were like, yeah. "Wait, are you are you like are you flipping serious? This is it? Like this is what he <laughs> says." That's it. It's like three pages. That's it. And it was, it's very vague. And I'm like, that's not helpful. I literally just took a picture of it reading through it the second time going, what? Um, also page 137, he says the conclusion that is that God's grace is dependent upon the will of man. I take real issue with that statement because God can have grace and still possess grace. It does not mean that it is now dependent on man right? I can be gracious to my daughter and possess the attribute of grace. It does not mean that I am in that now my grace is only dependent on her. Now, whether she responds or a proper way or not will probably dictate whether or not she receives grace for uh, my attribute of grace or not. Or she right. might receive my attribute of wrath, depending if she's disobedient. Now, granted, my child's like, a year and four months so she doesn't really receive my wrath much but you get my point <laughs> the idea here is silly because just because god has grace and there's a condition does not mean that suddenly god's grace is dependent on man it just simply means that god possesses the attribute and that there's a condition by which to receive it right conditionality is not the same as a dependency relation exactly so uh anyway um whereupon jews we what weren't do we leave oh yeah he says it is assumed by Arminian writers that Jerusalem represents individual Jews who are therefore capable of resisting the work of the will of God. But upon what warrant do we leave from Jerusalem to individual Jews? My point here is not all Arminians agree. That's right. not the Ar only Arminian position. So once again, we have a, a false view. So and even um, so, is that is that's not an unreasonable reading of it, right? Like, I mean, what, like right. it's perfectly reasonable to interpret Jerusalem as the people in Jerusalem. Like, why? Why would we just interpret Jerusalem as being scribes and Pharisees, right? Like, why are we interpreting them as just religious leaders? Not, it's not a synonym. Those are right. not synonyms. So I, I'll say White's reading is possible, but it's unjustified, and it's certainly not the natural reading. Right, and it's all, right, no, I agree. And also, I just don't think even White's reading dismisses the problem. Right, right, even if we accept it, there's he, an issue. Because he used that same exegesis in his argument against Stratton the other day. He's like, well, it's about the leaders. I'm like, that doesn't matter. Like, again, you're still the only people resisting a will. Uh, in fact, he says on page 138, this, this one consideration alone renders the passage useless for the Arminians seeking to establish free willism. No, it doesn't, as we've demonstrated. Um, also, he says the Jewish leaders were, who were unwilling, he put in quotes, to allow those under their authority to hear the proclamation of Christ. This verse then is speaking to the same issues raised in Matthew 23, 13, which is, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, uh, from people, for you do not enter into yourselves. Do you allow those who are entering to go in? This still sounds like free will language to me, White. I, it's not an exegetical approach. Um, and then he even quotes um, John Gill, who says on page 139 that the opposition and resistance to the will of Christ. That seems to defend my position, that there is a resistance to the will of Christ. So again, and then he just kind of stops and goes into 1 Timothy 2.4. Yep, that's it. Uh, all right, so anyway, um, now let's go ahead and go to first timothy 2. why not all right so first <laughs> timothy 2 3 through 4 um says this is good and acceptable in the sight of god our savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth now about this verse white writes quote 
The first appearance of the phrase, all men, appears at the end of verse 1. The very next phrase of the sentence explains Paul's meaning. For kings and for all who are in authority. Who are kings and all who are in authority? These are kinds or classes of men. Uh, and that's on page 40, or one, 140. Now, from the fact that Paul mentions kings and those in authority, White concludes that 1 Timothy 2.4 is simply expressing God's desire to save all kinds of men. White's first mistake is that he assumes that the phrase kings and all who are in authority is equivalent to or another way of saying all men. But what's the justification for that assumption? Kings are a subset of the broader category of those in authority, and those who are in authority represent a very small minority of mankind. Thus, it does not seem likely that all who are in authority is Paul's way of describing all kinds of men. Those who are in authority simply do not represent all kinds of men. Indeed, this very narrow range of people represent just the opposite of all kinds of men. It seems more likely that Paul is saying that no one is to be excluded from our prayers, including kings and those who are in authority. The reason that Paul feels the need to mention kings and those who are in authority is because first century Christians faced persecution at their hands, and as such, Christians would be likely to neglect offering prayers on behalf of their persecutors. After all, the authorities are trying to kill them. Ironically enough, White even acknowledges that this is the reason for why Paul mentions those who are in authority. But then he seems to be un uh, unaware that that undercuts his attempt to use this phrase in support of his view that all men in 2.1, and then by extension in 2.4, means all kinds of men. If the reason for mentioning those in authority is to emphasize that not even our worst enemies are to be excluded from our prayers, then one, this means that the phrase is not another way of saying all men, and two, it strengthens our confidence that all men really means each and every individual in both uh, 2.1 and in 2.4. Now, White attempts to bolster his case by citing several references where Paul allegedly uses all to mean all kinds. He cites Titus 2.11, Titus 3.2, Acts 21.28, Acts 22.15, Colossians 3.11, and Galatians 3.28. And that's on pages 140 through 141. So let's first note that even if White is correct in his interpretation of all of these other texts, it does not follow that all men means all kinds of men in 1 Timothy 2.4. We have to let the context of 1 Timothy itself determine that. More significantly, White is plausibly incorrect uh, in his interpretation of most of these other texts, right? So Titus 2.11, Titus 2.11, it says that for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now, White's justification for seeing all men as all kinds is that Paul is clearly referring to all kinds of people in Titus 2, 2 through 10. And that's certainly true. But White ignores the fact that verse 11 begins with the word for. And so this means that verse 11 is giving a reason for the instructions being offered in the earlier verses. In uh, Titus 2, 1 through 10, Paul is instructing Titus to teach proper behavior to the various kinds of people in the church. Verse 11 transitions into an explanation for why this type, this type of behavior is necessary. And church members are to exercise proper behavior because the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Nothing in the context allows White to say that because all kinds of people are to exercise proper behavior, therefore the grace of God appears to all kinds of men. This is that's just arbitrary. 
There's no reason to suppose that Titus 2.11 is referring to all kinds of men rather than all men. Same considerations apply to Titus 3.2. Paul exhorts Titus to be gentle and respectful to all men. Surely Paul does not mean that Titus is merely to show respect to some people from among all classes. Rather, Paul means that everyone who Titus interacts with is to be treated with dignity and respect. No one is to be excluded. Acts 21 uh, 28 contains uh, it contains a charge that the Jews make against Paul upon apprehending him. Now, uh, yeah, they say that Paul preaches Paul preaches the gospel uh, to all men, right? Uh, let me see. Whoops, I, I lost my. I scrolled down too far. Yeah, so they say uh, that Paul preaches to all men everywhere uh, against our people and the law and this place. Certainly the expression does not literally mean that Paul preached to every individual on earth. The Jews are employing a rhetorical device known as amplification for the purpose of indicting Paul. People use that sort of expression in everyday language. That's not really comparable to Paul's theological statement in 1 Timothy 2.4. All right, so Acts 22.15 appears in the middle of Paul recounting his testimony. He says that he was told that God had chosen him to be a witness to all men. White's interpretation uh, that this means all kinds of men is actually possible here, I think. However, it's also possible that Paul understood this quite literally as his testimony eventually reaching all men. He kind of indicates that in Romans 1, 8 through 9, Colossians 1, 6, and Colossians 1, 23, as well as 1 Thessalonians 1, 8. But whatever Paul's intent, his example demonstrates the context rather than uh other scattered references has to determine the meaning of all men in 1 Timothy 2.4. Colossians 3.11 says that there's no distinction between the Greek and the Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Uh, similarly, Galatians 3.28 says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In both of these cases, the statements are clearly delimited to believers, but these texts just have very little bearing on how one interprets 1 Timothy 2, 4. It's clearly about unbelievers. So all of that just to say that uh, I think white supporting verses of all the ones he listed, only Acts 22, 15 possibly supports his thesis that all men can mean all kinds. But here's the thing. Literally no Arminian denies that all can be restricted when context allows. Uh, you know, but Acts 22.15 is far removed from 1 Timothy 2.4. White has to demonstrate that something in the context of 1 Timothy 2 allows for all to be interpreted as all kinds of men or all kinds of people in 1 Timothy 2.4. It is worth noting that Paul also uses the term all in a universal sense, right? Like Romans 1.18, Galatians 3.8, And I mean, I could go on and on, uh, but basically Paul uses it in a universal sense as well. So in view of this, it does not seem that White's appeal to a few texts where all might mean all kinds serves to demonstrate anything more than that that's a possible interpretation of 1 Timothy 2, uh, yeah, 2, 1 and 2, 4. However, his only contextual argument was invalid. And so consequently, he hasn't given us any reason to think that um, God only wants some from among all kinds to be saved. I've got a second argument here, but let me let me turn it back over to you. Uh, Dr. Layton Flowers, if that's you, he says, be careful not to mispronounce any words or that will be the only thing white focuses on. We already discussed that. Uh, we already can't be taken seriously. Uh, 
Mr. Palman here already almost said defunding instead of defending is a problem. So now we're completely invalid. So, um, yes. Will Benson. <laughs> Look, guys, uh, Benson was not an original thinker. Okay. So, uh, anyhow, but with all joking aside, uh, let's move forward. So, the other thing is I wanted to mention as well, because when let's, I like to use analogous methodology a little bit to help people understand what we're saying. So, if we're talking about First uh, Timothy 2 4, when he says, when he desires all men to be saved, he mentions, I urge that the. Uh, and treaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving. So he's speaking broadly about multiple categories. He made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. Oh, David, did I lose you? I think I lost, oh, there you are. David, I can't hear you. What happened? Go ahead. All right, all right, I'm back, all right. Whoa. Uh, yeah, that was dangerous. All right, um, my second. You want me to give my second argument? Well, hold on real quick. I'm going through mine, and then you fell out. I don't know what happened there. So All right. give me a second. I look up, and you were gone. I was like, David, you were raptured. Um, so... <laughs> um, so he says right here, I, he desires all men. I want us to point out here that Paul, if I'm going to give a meaningful exegesis of uh, 1 Timothy 2, 4, he gives, he says all, then he gives qualifiers, and then he repeats all again. So this is my argument primarily. He made on that he did this on behalf of all men for kings who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So he's speaking multiple categories. This is good and acceptable in sight of God and our Savior who desires all men to be saved. So just he says all, including kings and all again. So it is not good enough to say that, oh, just because those are a category of men, that the category of men are the only ones being talked about when he says all beforehand and then says kings and then all again. So he's emphasizing all. Yeah. Um, I just don't think that it lends itself to White's interpretation at all in the it, text. It's like me going, hey, guys, look. Uh, our church should be serving our community. It should be serving the fathers, the mothers, the, the widows, the elderly, the young people, the children. And then somebody go, and I'm like, it needs to be serving everybody. And then someone goes, okay, so therefore he's only talking about kinds of people. He's not talking about everybody. No, yeah. I'm, using, I'm using a qualifier in the middle to give you an understanding of my all statements. So anyway, and, and continue. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's even, what's even more analogous is like if you said that we should be serving the community, including um, like uh, the the um, like the mayor and um, the you know the town council and stuff. You know, you mention only the people who are in authority, and so you say, "Oh, that's what he means. He just means different kinds of people." Because he mentioned, you know, it's like. That that's not all kinds of people, you know. That's not that that's a that's a very narrow group. So yeah, no, I agree with your point. There. Uh, then also, I just want to say, since I think that's Doctor Flowers in the chat right now, we are talking about their mispronunciations, not man, mine. I mean, um, see, I can't talk. You're the one who says Texas Baptist, all right, like a proper southerner. So I don't think I can take you seriously on your Baptist, okay? He um, also says RC Sproul. <laughs> Can't, can't, can't account for accents and mispronunciations. All right, we're beating that dead horse so hard, but it's just a fun one. It's just hilarious. So keep going. All right, so White's interpretation of, <clears throat> of 1 Timothy 2.4 faces yet another difficulty. White agrees with Arminians that the all men in 1 Timothy 2.1 are the same as the all men mentioned in 1 Timothy 2.4. Now notice that in 2.1, Paul is exhorting Timothy to pray for these people. Now get this, 
if God only wants some from among all kinds of people to be saved in 2.4, this entails that prayers are only to be offered on behalf of those same people in 2.1. Now that raises a problem for the idea that all men means all kinds of men. Calvinists often remind us, right, when, when they're responding to, you know, the argument that <clears throat> they shouldn't evangelize, right, because it's all predetermined, they'll say, oh, well, we don't know who the elect are. <clears throat> but if they don't know who the elect are, then how can they pray that pray for them, as Paul is commanding in 1 Timothy 2.1? White says, uh, you know, Paul is not instructing Timothy to initiate never-ending prayer meetings where the Ephesian phone book would be opened and every single person listed therein would become the object of prayer. End quote, page 140. Now, White is correct that Paul was not suggesting that each and every individual on the planet is to be prayed for, but neither is Paul suggesting that Timothy should pray only for the elect from among all kinds of men, as White's interpretation suggests. Because as we've just noted, under White's interpretation, Timothy couldn't possibly know who these individuals are. So Paul's command to pray for all men is similar to Jesus's command to preach the gospel to all men. Jesus did not mean that we as individuals are to literally preach to each and every person. Rather, he meant that Christians as a group are to ultimately reach each and every individual. So that same meaning applies to the exhortation to pray for, for all men, all people, in 1 Timothy 2.1. No one should be deliberately excluded from a Christian's prayers. Remembering again Paul's reminder in 2.2 that kings and those in authority are not to be excluded from our prayers lend support to the interpretation that I'm proposing. The Arminian can read this passage consistently. God does not want anyone to be excluded from our prayers because no one is excluded from God's salvific desire. By contrast, the Calvinist can only make all men mean all kinds of men by turning Paul's exhortation to pray for these same people into nonsense. Right, and then I, I do want to comment on Acts 22, 15, because those are all kinds of men, because Paul can't possibly give the gospel to every single person. But the point of he's saying all, to all men is without exclusion. Anyone I encounter, I will preach this to. Right. So if God, if you're using that, then that's also a bad argument, because again, he's saying without exclusion, which means that if we're going to use all men here, so okay, God gives grace to all without exclusion. Um, we could apply the same thing. He's going to give it to all people as a human being. Um, also, people are cracking up in the chat. I just have to point out, yes, you're, I, that was the first thing that stuck out to me as well, Nick, is I can't, I could not say your last name. It's Quint, apparently. I kept saying Quint, Quint, and then you're like, no, it's Quint. Uh, it took me forever to get that right. Um, even though I've heard other people say it right, I always forget. Um, so yeah, and then that's the other one that stuck out to me, David, was uh, Augustine. We say Augustine, but I will quote Dr. Pritchett here and say, Augustine for the snobs. So anyway, um, so anyhow, uh, then the other thing is, is in Colossians 3.11, I just want to point out that he's talking about the, that those are all, those are people who are in Christ. So that doesn't quite work, because again, if you take an idea of not like individual election, but corporate election, then it's those who are in Christ. Uh, then also Galatians 3.28, uh, I think it's worth noting that the, neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female, he's given broad categories again, uh, because all are one in Christ Jesus. He's, he's talking about two believers there. So again, uh, he's not talking about unbelievers of all kinds of people. He's just saying that those are who are in Christ, there is no distinction between them, because we're all equal in value. So again, I don't think the exegesis works. Here. So, all right. 
Um, continue on, my friend. I just wanted to give my two cents for, to your paragraphs. <laughs> no, it's good stuff. Um, moving on, then. Second Peter 3, 9. <clears throat> the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And regarding that verse, White says, quote, Peter writes to a specific group, not to all mankind. It surely limits the context to the saved, page 147. In other words, White sees Peter as merely stating that God does not want any of the original Christian recipients of this letter to perish. However, there's kind of a rather obvious flaw in that interpretation. The original recipients of the letter had already repented and therefore were not going to perish. Indeed, the very argument depends critically upon the fact that believers are the recipients of the letter. But if that statement is addressed to those who are already saved, the statement that God does not want any of them to perish would not explain the need for God to delay the judgment. God cannot delay judgment for those who are already not going to perish because he doesn't want them to perish. That's absurd. So therefore, whatever interpretation of this verse we want to take, the you cannot be restricted to the immediate audience because that leads to absurd conclusions. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, your thoughts are mine. I'll let you keep going so that way we won't take four years. All right. So White turns right around, contradicts himself, proceeding to argue that the text actually refers to the elect and not to the saved. Uh, quote, Peter is saying the coming of the Lord has been delayed so that all of the elect can be gathered in, page 147. Now, while the problems with this reading are less obvious than with the previous interpretation, it still faces overriding deficiencies. In the first place, White has not provided sufficient contextual reasons for limiting God's salvific desire to the elect here. The mere fact that the letter is addressed to believers does not entail that the statement in 3.9 only applies to believers. More significantly, this interpretation leads to absurdity. It doesn't explain the need for the delay. According to Calvinism, regeneration precedes faith, right? Uh, and so once God has regenerated a sinner, they cannot fail to come to faith in Christ. But under this assumption, why should there be any delay? What's God waiting for? He could simply regenerate the elect, they would inevitably believe, and the judgment could fall without delay. The very presence of the word patience, and I'm not gonna, <clears throat> I'm not gonna try to pronounce the Greek word there, but it, it does mean patience or, or waiting. The very presence of that word suggests that there's this conditional factor at play, which is not entirely determined by God. Uh, Louis Ruggiero, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly because White will have no mercy on me if I'm not, but he puts this point rather well in his book. <clears throat> Quote, it appears to me that reformers actually think that God is being patient while waiting for himself to do something. If reformers are correct about regeneration, why doesn't God just zap his elect with it so he doesn't need to be patient at all? The reformed view that the us word, or the, the you, is the elect in this verse, therefore, completely defies logic and totally contradicts its teaching on regeneration. Ruggiero correctly notes that if conditionality is removed from this verse, then effectively you have God being patient with himself. <clears throat> but that's not what the verse says. According to 2 Peter 3.9, God is patient with those he does not want to perish. So this makes the idea that only the elect are in view highly unlikely. 
Well, and then, like I said, it's weird to say that um, my patience is dependent on me alone. Because the whole point of being patient is I am enduring something from without, not within. Usually, like I am, I'm dealing with external things. Now, granted, someone could say I'm shaping God in my image, or they'll just say, Who are you, oh man, right? And just kind of gaslight you from using any kind of logic or reason on it, um, as if God didn't, uh, as if the Logos didn't become flesh. But anyway, um, but uh, the point is for me on that frustration here uh, on that view is the fact that I think it just makes God nonsensical. And then this is where someone basically just says, like I said, who are you, old man? And then tells you basically, don't think, just believe. And I take issue with anyone who just says something well, along that nature, which actually, uh, even on Dr. Stratton's debate, that's kind of what the lat his uh, white almost made a statement like that in his closing statement, which is just to don't ask the question, just believe it. And I think that's problematic for a number of reasons, especially as someone who came out of the IFB, I take a real issue with that. Um, and same with yourself. Uh, it's no, thinking is good because thinking is what equips. In fact, we use thinking all the time. So to just sit there and say not to question these things in scripture is problematic. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, that's a little side rant. I don't know if White would say that, but I'm just pointing it out. So um, <laughs> the fact that prevenient grace is referred to as zapping is pretty scandalous, guys. Thanks, pink noise. <laughs> Sorry, that's kind of funny. All right, moving on to chapter seven, right? Or is there anything you wanted to touch on? Nope, nope, nope. We can move on to Beautiful. Jesus teaching extreme Calvinism. Yeah, the first thing that stuck out to me was he equates his view as Jesus's view. Um, oof, big oof. Yeah, like I could do that in general, like, well, Jesus disagrees with you. Uh, and it's like the classic thing, like whenever I'm debating anyone uh, ever, uh, they're like, well, Jesus disagrees. I'm like, yeah, you know, no. I, I, th I think there's a name for that. It's called um, begging the question. Oh, begging the question. Nobody who does begging the question fallacies around here. Yes, yes. Just assuming that your interpretation of the verse is correct. Like there's no, there's no need to actually engage with, like, there's no, like, we all agree with Jesus, right? Right. We're all dealing with the same words. It's the question of who's got the best interpretation of those words. Sorry, White, the text doesn't speak for itself. There is interpretation that has to go on. Right. Um, so, all right, let's move forward into uh, this because this is John 6 stuff. And I think you're going to provide at least some form of meaningful exegesis. <laughs> well, we'll see because White says on page 153 and 154, quote, there is no meaningful non-reformed exegesis of this passage available, by which he means John 6. As numerous as the attempts of Arminian exegetes to find some way around the testimony of these verses have been, not even a plausible solution has been offered that does not require the complete dismantling of the text, end quote. So this is interesting. White acknowledges that several Arminian scholars have offered non-Calvinist readings of John 6 but he doesn't tell us which readings he has in mind. He doesn't cite any Arminians, nor does he show any problems with their interpretations. Why doesn't White engage with Leroy Fourlines, Robert Piccarelli, Brian Abastiano, John, uh, Joseph Donjel, Robert Shank, or Robert Hamilton? Each of these scholars has dedicated a significant amount of space to dealing with John Six, yet White leaves their work completely untouched content to simply say that their exegesis is not meaningful and dismantles the text. But White just never demonstrates that. 
Also, what he deals with, just because Leighton is in the comments, I'll do it now. Uh, there are other views of John 6. And in fact, I know your arch nemesis, uh, Dr. Leighton Flowers, does so in his book, The Potter's Promise. Um, so just throwing that out there, I know it's probably not meaningful enough or whatever, but uh, there are other views. And actually, I hold to a judicial hardening view. So I actually agree. So anyway, yes, continue. But it would be too much to ask White to interact with those interpretations of it, you know. Instead, he's going to go after low-hanging fruit like uh, Norman Geisler. But then again, that's exactly what we're doing here and going after him, so I can't blame him too much. Uh, White argues that Jesus taught Calvinism, and he's primarily using John 6.37 and 6.44, right? So John 6.37, everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Uh, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Pretty sure John 6, 44 is James White's favorite verse in the Bible. It's too bad he can't interpret it correctly. So before interacting with White... Shots fired. <laughs> Sorry, I'm being spicy. I don't mind uh, it. Saucy. Before interacting with White, uh, it'll be helpful if I lay out my own understanding of these verses, uh, and that way it'll be easier to see which of White's arguments apply to my reading and which ones don't. Uh, and, you know, Will, if you have a different nuance or understanding at some point, you know, feel free to offer that. Um, but I'm just kind of given from my perspective. I think we're pretty close, though. Yes. So basically, being given by the Father or being drawn to the Son happens prior to saving faith in John 6. And I want to be clear that I'm not going to attempt to deny that, like Geisler does. The question we want to answer is this. Why are some given to Christ and not others? James White's answer to this question is saying that basically that's a reference to the elect. And so the reason that they are given to Christ is because God unconditionally chose them for salvation, and he just rejected the rest. Here's an alternative hypothesis. I propose that this refers uh, to... A well, not to a specific group of individuals chosen for salvation before the foundation of the world. Rather, it primarily refers to the faithful Jews who were God's children under the Old Covenant and who were therefore prepared to believe on Christ by their own willful obedience to the law of God. Examining the Old Testament usage of certain terms and phrases often sheds considerable light on their usage in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's plainly obvious that the nation of Israel belongs to God, right? And so the following passages, uh, well, well, we'll get to those, um, but yeah, more significant than that, belonging to God, and uh, that can sometimes take a more restrictive sense, right? So we've got Israel that belongs to God as his people, but there can be times where that's a little bit more restricted, uh, and that's in cases where, you know, only the faithful Israelites are counted as belonging to God. Furthermore, sometimes unfaithful Jews are identified as not belonging to God. So, in other words, God's people, uh, in a special sense, is contingent upon obedience to him. So That's very Romans 9 of you. Yes, how, how very Romans 9 of me, right? But, yeah, those, those who are obedient or who are disobedient are not counted among God's people, though they're still part of Israel. And yet, uh, you know, those who are being faithful are, you know, called God's sheep or said to belong to him and such. So the evidence becomes more interesting, right? The Old Testament gives us prophecies that when the Messiah comes, he's going to gather together a faithful remnant from among God's people, right? This is, uh, we find this in Jeremiah 23, 3 through 5, right? I myself will gather the remnant of my flock 
out of all countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just in the land. Also consider Ezekiel 37, 23 through 26. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offense, for I will save from or I will save them from all their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decree. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. So first we see that faithful Israelites can be considered God's people in a special sense, and that unfaithful Israelites can be excluded. In these prophecies, we see that when the Messiah comes, he will gather together the faithful children of Israel. So to summarize all of that, the Old Testament presents Israel as being God's people and God's sheep. However, when the people of Israel are nationally in rebellion against God, it is only those faithful Jews who are said to belong to God. The disobedient Jews are explicitly said to not be God's people. This is significant because those who belong to God were counted as such contingent or conditionally upon their obedience and faithfulness to God's law. Moreover, the Old Testament predicts that the Messiah will gather together his faithful ones. Now, when we read the New Testament with these prophecies in mind, we can see them being fulfilled. That has major implications for our understanding of John 6. If we understand the Father to be giving the faithful Jews to Jesus in John 6, we see a clear fulfillment of Old Testament predictions. Of importance for our purposes here, the giving of these faithful Jews to Christ is conditional upon their prior receptivity to God's revelation, which allowed them to be able to believe on Christ. So that's just kind of the Old Testament background that sets the stage, right? The Old Testament gives plausibility to the idea that the Jews who are given to Christ in 637 and drawn by the Father in 644 were faithful Jews who were voluntarily living in proper covenant relationship with God. But more than this, there are good contextual reasons within the Gospel of John itself for preferring this interpretation. In John 5, 40-47, Jesus says, You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Do not think that I will accuse you before your father, or before the father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. But if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So we see that the Jews refused to believe on Christ, and the stated reason is that they did not respond positively to the revelation God had already given to them. Nothing is said about an eternal decree of God to save some and damn others. The cause of their inability to believe in Christ lay in their own refusal to heed the light that God had already given to them. Uh, note well that Jesus says that if they had listened to Moses they would have believed in him. Jesus states the fact of their unbelief and the cause of their unbelief, which was willful rejection of the truth. So let's make no mistake that Jesus is expressing sufficient conditions for coming to faith here. And yet, in this passage, Jesus lays the responsibility squarely on the shoulders of those Jews who had not listened. We see this again in uh, John 3, 20-21. 
For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. In this verse, coming to the light is synonymous with believing in Christ. And we see that Jesus recognizes two kinds of people, those who love the darkness due to their evil deeds and those who come to the light because they have practiced the truth. Here again, we see evidence that the responsibility of who comes to Christ and who does not lies in the Jews' own prior response to the revelation God had given to them. Along these same lines, the same theme in the Gospel of John, it appears in John 18.37, uh, Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. The hearing of Christ's voice is conditional upon one's own decision to be on the side of truth. Another text in the Gospel of John, John 7.17, here Jesus says, if anyone is willing to do his will, then he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. So we see that recognition of the truth of Christ's words is contingent upon first voluntarily submitting to the will of the Father. Where, may I ask, is the text that says that the Jews could not believe because God had unconditionally damned them to hell? You won't find that text in the Gospel of John. So to summarize... We've seen that the Gospel of John recognizes a class of people who cannot believe on Christ and a class of people who certainly will. Calvinists explain these statements by reference to unconditional election. However, evidence throughout the Old Testament and the Gospel of John itself suggests a very different interpretation. Those who cannot believe on Christ have ignored the previous revelation of God, whereas those who have believed God's revelation will most definitely believe on Christ. The explanation for who believes and who does not remains conditional upon the actions of the individual. Now, we can go into John 6 and apply that uh, to the specific text, but I want to give you a chance, Will, to come back with, you know, anything you've, you've got on that. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that instantly sticks out to me is, of course, uh, a compatibilist, though, will redefine willing as they are, you know, they're regenerated because regeneration precedes faith in their view, um, which I don't really see in scripture. I think it's trying to systemize certain texts while also ignoring other texts that would say otherwise, if you're trying to systemize them. But anyway, I believe regeneration and faith happen at the exact same time, because that's how you get regenerated is through faith. So uh, anyway, but um, point is here is, so I just know what, how they, they will deflect there, but I just don't, but again, I think you're reading that into what willing is. Like, remember, you're taking your systematic and you're applying it over it, almost like philosophy comes before theology, but anyway. Right, and, um, and, and a key point there is that in order to do that, they would have to, they, that would mean they can't be using these texts to then justify their belief. Their systematic has to be imposed on it. As far as exegesis is concerned, we're both, um, we're both given a, a, a responsible exegesis. Right. So the other thing is uh, I wanted to make sure I mentioned is because I, I take the judicial hardening approach. This makes perfect sense because remember when Paul's like, no, we can't go to those people and because those people will repent. God's called me this way. Almost like there's a judicial hardening. God's going no, like, just like he, he will remove the truth or the ability of the truth to be given to them. Why? Because they can't respond. Jesus even admits, why do they're like, why do you speak in parables? It's like, lest they hear and understand and repent. I am judicially, I'm judicially hardening them right now uh, because they have made their choice, right? And so, and but in John 6, what do we see later on happen? He says, all, God will call all men unto himself after the Son of Man has been lifted up. So in other words, this is a temporary time where God is bringing out those who are, like you said, 
are, have been faithful to the prophets, who have been faithful to obedience and faithfulness. Because in a Jewish mind, if you go into first century mind, uh, the first century Jewish mind, your faithfulness was equated also with your doingness, <laughs> if you will. Um, you can't say, I have faith and live like a uh, reprobate. We would agree to this day. So that is what he's saying here, that those who are called unto me are those who simply have been faithful. And after the sun has been lifted up, he will call all men unto himself. But right now he is operating very specifically as Messiah to a specific group. Now, I did want to address a couple things in the chat. I don't want to get too distracted by the chat, but he, uh, Zealot TV says, I never liked the phrase man-centered. means you disagree about something very superficial from someone else. Exactly. I said this in my last, uh, our last episode on this too. I hate that term because I think uh, like the reform boys, if we can go call them that, the reform boys, they want to, uh, and in their effort to keep God powerful, they have removed man from the equation and just they they make everything about God's glory uh, for himself and not about his love for his creation uh, and the relationship there. I think it's a problem if you divorce God from the equation or you divorce man from the equation. They are mankind is important. He, we were created in his image. So to say that man is needs to be removed from the equation and man's will needs to be removed from the equation is to remove a giant chunk of what makes scripture powerful. Uh, it, it seems to be not helpful, but anyway. Um, and then uh, I do want to quickly address Pink Noise uh, because I know he is a Calvinist. He has a reformed, uh, he has Kelvin in, in his uh, profile picture. But he says, they know the father before they know the son, question mark. Uh, you might have a different response to that, but I just wanted to say, yeah, they know the father before they know the son. The Jews knew the, about the father. The son was a later revelation. So they've been following the father this entire time by their knowledge. So I just wanted to throw that out there. So anyway. All yeah, right. and I, I would just say that I think that they had uh, they had knowledge of the father from the revelation that they had been giving. Did they, exactly. have, like, did they have like the salvific uh, kind of relationship with God that we have through the son? No, they didn't. Right? We know that the son had to um, choose to reveal the father to people, right? That's that's explicit. So they didn't have a full knowledge of God, no, but they knew the things that God had revealed uh, in the Old Testament to them, yes. Right, right. So anyway, point is, of my point with John 6 is simply saying that God judicially hardened. There's a reason why Jesus went and speaking with parables, because otherwise they could respond. Right. And if they can't respond, it kind of disproves the point that I think White's trying to make. Yeah, for uh, sure. All right, cool. Moving on. All right. Yeah. So then, so yeah, I, I laid out, you know, my hermeneutic and uh, you, you started applying it to the passages. So yeah, I'll just, um, I'll interact then with White's kind of, um, White's arguments here. So uh, again, John six thirty seven. all that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. White sees strong support for Calvinism here saying, quote, the action of giving by the father comes before the action of coming to Christ by the individual. And since all of those so given infallibly come, we have here both unconditional election and irresistible grace in the space of nine words, end quote, page 156. The question we want to answer is this, who is given to the Son? In contrast to White, who sees that as an irresistible work of regeneration, the interpretation that I'm proposing works really well. God gives the faithful children of Israel to Christ because they've been receptive to the revelation God has already given him, right? There is no reason to suppose, as White does, that the giving is unconditional. 
Jesus' statement in 645 supports my contention that this is a, condi a conditional given. Right? Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Robert Hamilton puts this point quite nicely. Quote, Though Jesus said that all that the Father gives to me will come to me, this statement assumes that the ones so given are at that time in a state of receptivity to God's revealed truth. Nowhere in any passage explored earlier do we find any hint that a person who is resisting God's grace can simultaneously be a recipient of the saving actions of God. End quote. So if we've established that John 6.37 does not secure the case for unconditional election, let's turn to James White's favorite verse, John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Once again, we see that the interpretation that I'm proposing works well. Those being drawn are the faithful Jews. God is not drawing the unfaithful Jews because they've not been receptive to the revelation that God had already extended to them. These are the faithful Jews who had believed the revelation that God had given them, were thereby prepared for the full revelation of God in Christ, and were now being drawn to him. There is no contextual reason whatsoever to suppose that the giving and drawing referenced here is unconditional. And conversely, there are good contextual reasons for thinking that the giving and drawing were based on the Jews' own response to their scriptures and to God's provenient grace. And again, we, we looked at some of the biblical evidence for that earlier. The drawing in verse 44 parallels the giving in verse 37. They refer to the same action. The giving in verse 37 is a present tense verb, thus the giving and drawing of John 6.37 and 6.44 refer to actions that God is presently doing. Jesus says that no man can presently come to him unless the Father draws him. He does not say that no man can ever come to him without being drawn in the way that John 6.44 describes. Now, of course, as an Arminian, I believe that people have to be enabled through provenient grace, but that's not what I take John 6:44 to be describing. The verse refers to the Father's present action, you know, present relative to the time that Jesus said it, God's present action of drawing the faithful children of Israel to their Messiah. White lays a lot of emphasis on the fact that this drawing is effectual. <clears throat> he says, quote, The identity of those raised on the last day to eternal life is absolutely coextensive with the identity of those who are drawn. If a person is drawn, he will also be raised up to eternal life, end quote, page 160. But the fact that the drawing is effectual, that's not problematic for my reading. An effectual drawing is simply a successful drawing. My hypothesis suggests that the Father draws those to Christ who had already established a pattern of receptivity to God's revelation. Thus, when God fully reveals himself in the person of Christ, it's expected that those who have already responded to his previous revelation will respond to the full revelation. Those who believe Moses will believe Christ, John 5:46. Establishing that the drawing is effectual does not establish that it is unconditional or irresistible. As Robert Hamilton says, quote, it is important to bear in mind here that a sufficient condition does not properly entail irresistibility. Though all those who belong to God as Christ's sheep unfailingly come to Christ, this is not because they are irresistibly determined to do so, but because their hearts are already freely predisposed in response to prior provenient grace to continue exercising faith, end quote. So the, what it comes down to, um, 
Yeah, uh, Dr. Leighton Flowers, I agree. Divine revelation is gracious and sufficient. Absolutely. So the, the idea of prevenient grace, because we have a Calvinist in the chat. He's saying, David understands the assignment that prevenient grace is necessary within the Arminian view for man to overcome the bondage of the will. I cannot find the necessity of grace within the provisionist movement, sadly. Grace is amazing. Why conceal this truth? I don't know of a single provisionist or a minion who denies the amazingness of grace. So I actually do not where that I have any idea where that's coming from. Um, in fact, uh, as Leighton Flowers just said, divine revelation and great is gracious and sufficient. Uh, I even I, I'm one of the people that believe even natural revelation is. I believe uh, that's why we're all held uh, accountable without excuse. Is because I believe. God's glory is poured out on all his creation, and therefore we all can come to a saving knowledge of God. I'm not saying you you hold to that view either, David, so don't lump him in with me, but I take a Romans 2 inclusivist approach there, which I believe we will be held responsible for how we respond to what we do know. Um, people can disagree with me. I've heard other exegesis of, those, uh, of Romans 2, but my point is here is that I do believe God has given sufficient grace to all mankind to respond. So... Um, anyway, uh, my, that's my, my, my closing thought on that part. So I just wanted to make sure we're, yeah, no one say that there's not, that prevenient grace isn't important. It is. Grace has been given to all men, hence it's prevenient. Uh, uh, to say otherwise, to say otherwise is to say that God shows partiality amongst people and classes. Uh, or, or at least because if you look through uh, the amount of people who are Christian, you will find a large portion at the very early first century in the Middle East, and the rest has been European and Western. Uh, and of course, now we, there's an explosion in China and Africa, but we would have to say that God apparently shows more partiality to one group throughout history and only recently been showing uh, equal parts to others. I, I just find it erroneous. Am I making sense here, David? Yeah, yeah, I've never, I've never heard a good explanation why, uh, for why election, which is supposedly unconditional, seems to be, um, you know, delimited geographically to people who have, you know, exposure to, you know, more opportunities to hear the gospel and such as that. I, I've never heard a good Calvinist explanation for that, other than, you know, just the ad hoc, well, those are just the ones that God chose to select and some vague reference to God uses means. But yeah, I see your point. Right. Okay. So, okay. I'm glad I'm being clear here. Sometimes I go on tangents and I'm not clear. I just kind of I turn into word vomit. But anyway, uh, so I, that is my main, I think you uh, gave a proper exegetical view of this. I think uh, you've also, I love the fact that you do what I try to do on our program as well, which is try to represent multiple interpretations of it to just show that, because when you're saying that Jesus taught it, and you're not showing that there are other views of what how Jesus taught it, I think it's problematic because you are claiming 100% authoritative authoritative position over it. It's very Pope of you, uh, so um, one might say. Right. So yeah. I mean, I, I firmly believe that Jesus, you know, was teaching, you know, the view that I have just espoused in this passage, right? But I realize it's a bit presumptuous of me to say that Jesus was teaching Arminianism, right? Uh, because I realized that that that's that just not helpful, right? Even though that's what I believe, everyone believes that Jesus is teaching their perspective. That's why we've got to assess the interpretation to avoid begging the question. Right, right. So um, with that being said, I said everything I needed to say uh, and everything else, I kind of piggybacked off of you a little bit. Um, 
but that's just the nature of these. If I made as many notes as David made, we would never end these streams. <laughs> so uh, I, I've told him beforehand, it's like, hey man, I got your notes. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna add my notes in between and just call it a day. Um, otherwise, because I am long-winded. But uh, anyway, is there anything you wanted to add real quick? No, no, just reiterate again, this has nothing to do with, you know, hating on white. You know, we got we got two more parts to the series that we'll do. Um, and, you know, again, we, we just want to engage with the ideas of the book. Yes, we're going to have fun with it. Some people have kind of mistaken our banter and jokes for us, you know, mocking James White. That's really not been our intention. We've uh, really been having some fun with it, right? I mean, he did that too, right? Like James White had fun with, you know, us mispronouncing things and such. Um, and, you know, that that's not, that's, it's not wrong. It's not sinful to have fun with it. Um, you know, just as long as, you know, you're being above board about it and, you know, not, not trying to like be unkind or whatever. Right. Well, um, Brian has pointed out that he does the same thing on his program. Brian's like, he does it all the time on the dividing line. He he jokes around and banters. I never took that as a bad thing. I always just kind of laughed along because, yeah. again, so people have to understand, David and I both have similar backgrounds. David and I both have very similar enough personalities. We are bros talking about a book, which means that we're going to crack jokes and do a little, I don't know, banter. <laughs> don't yeah. take it personally. Don't think we're mocking because of that. Again, the church was very much a late night talk show kind of kind of set up. And that's because I, I didn't say this at the beginning, but I want to say it now. So often in theology, all the theologians become snotty, petty grumps in their ivory towers. And we don't know how to engage with the everyman and just have a good time. We, we don't need to separate ourselves from the everyman. We are no better than the everyman. And we don't need to sit there and be petty uh like in some weird academic sort of way i think we can have a good time with theology i think it's one of the things that have put people off from theology is they see the way that a lot of theologians act and i just think we can have a good time with it um so anyway my point is that get out we're not in our ivory towers i've never tried to be on this program uh so if you try to put me in there and treat me like i'm in an ivory tower i'm just gonna laugh at you because i'm not <laughs> i take my studies very seriously i don't take myself very seriously so if that but, is a good but do, way to put do, that. do you take greg benson very seriously I do not take Benson very seriously, um, <laughs> but mainly because I don't take presuppositional apologetics very seriously. It is um, hard to do. It is, and I, I look. I, I love many of my. I have many presupp friends, and they know. I I tell them all the time that I find uh, presuppositionalism uh, hilariously contrived. They're like, we know you think that will. I'm like, okay, as long as you know. <laughs> um, anyway, with that being said, guys. Uh, let us know your thoughts down below. Thank you for engaging in the live chat. Uh, if you want, go ahead and subscribe and like to the channel if you want. Otherwise, if you hate what we do, just do what all the other drones did in the last video who took uh, a five-minute segment from White thinking that he actually debunked us and he didn't. Uh, and just go ahead and leave hateful comments down below. I enjoyed them. Uh, my favorite, I literally had this. This guy's like, wow, what an absolute joke of ignorance. And I was like, okay. okay. And you were in the same comments. Like, can you demonstrate where in this video? It's like, I don't have to. It's done right here. And just post a link. I'm like, you did not watch that full thing, did you? Because he did not interact with the content. So no. I believe the kids call that a self own. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, guys, uh, thank you so much for uh, tuning into the church split. We have two more in the series. And if white does do any meaningful responses, we will do a response to those meaningful responses. And then uh, on and on and on and on the cycle will go for all eternity. So anyway, uh, thank you guys for tuning in. Check out faith because of reason and especially uh, 
David's breakdown of presuppositional apologetics from Van Til and Benson and everyone else. Uh, it's very good, it's very scholarly, unlike myself who you should not take seriously, so. <laughs> Uh, all right. Cool, guys. Thank you so much for hanging out with us and take care. We'll see you next time on the church split. Take care and God bless. <laughs>